for their uh, medical developments and their safety and security. And of course, over, over in the Middle East, um, our friends and family, as there is uh, another rise in violence in Yerushalayim and Jerusalem, and praying for everyone's safety and well-being, and obviously uh, for, for, for peace, not just a, a peace of the moment, but for a lasting peace. So friends, today we're going to talk about free will. One of the great 40 debates has to be about free will. So let's start with, uh, let's start with a poll here about your belief in free will. Do you believe in free will? First, free will is irrational and determinism is clear. Or free will is real but very limited. Three, I don't know. Or, I believe humans are mostly free to make choices. Or lastly, humans have radical freedom to determine their fates. Okay, so please make a choice over there. Take a moment to cast your vote so we can see who's in the room. Give you another five seconds. Okay, let's see our results. Here we go. No, okay, nobody completely rejects free will, nor does anybody believe here that it is radical freedom. And so we have 14% who think it's real but limited, and 86% who believe humans are mostly free to make choices. Very interesting, very, very interesting. Okay, friends, for all of us who are familiar with Jewish theology, we take free will for granted. After all, how could life, not to mention religious life, have any purpose if our choices are predetermined and we are not actually free to make meaningful choices? It turns out that the three best cases for determinism were made by Jews. Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx. Freud argued that humans are determined by their early childhood experiences. Marx argued that people are determined by their socioeconomic status. And Einstein, argue that people are determined by the laws of physics, building off the work of an earlier Jew, Spinoza, 
who argued that people are determined by their inner dispositions, what we would call today our genes or our DNA. Of course they were all right, at least partially. Marx was correct that one's socioeconomic status is highly predictive of one's future lifestyle choices and options for choices. Freud was correct that one's early childhood experiences are highly correlated with one's future. Einstein and Spinoza were correct that empirical data can be used to show causation, especially with regard to human DNA. And yet, is that the end of the story? In the Torah, we learn of our opportunity to choose. It says in Deuteronomy, see I set before you today life and goodness, death and evil, for I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in God's ways and to keep God's commandments. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Choose life. Maimonides is forcefully adamant that humans are free. Do not believe the thought expressed by foolish nations and many unwise Jews that when God creates a person, God decrees whether they will be righteous or evil. This is not the case. Rather, each person has the capability to choose to become righteous, like Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, or evil like Yeruvim, the biblical Israelite king, wise or foolish, merciful or cruel. And similarly, regarding any other attribute. The consequences and responsibilities of having free will are enormous. Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, a 20th century Musar teacher, wrote, each decision one makes impacts on all situations and every day of our, of, of, of our life. Whether to a small or greater extent, whether beneficial or detrimental, and one's decisions affect not only oneself. For example, the decisions one makes regarding one's children's education have repercussions for all future generations. For, a, for each person influences their environment. Therefore, the impact of one's decisions affects their environment as well as their generation, even the entire world for all future generations. And yet, the Talmudic sages do also show limits of free will. It's not all free will. Consider the Talmudic teaching. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of God, which is to say humans are, have very little freedom at all. That comes from the Talmud of Brachot. And here's what Rashi says about it. Everything that is placed on a person is decreed by God. For instance, whether the person is tall or short, poor, rich, smart, dull, light or dark is all decreed by heaven. But whether a person is righteous or evil is not decreed by heaven, but is entrusted to the individual's choice. They have two paths in front of them and need to choose the fear of heaven. Rashi here is asserting that while one's physical attributes are predetermined by their inner disposition, his or her spiritual and emotional attributes are not. So we might say, we might ask the same question, what is predetermined about my life? And what is the realm that I still choose? Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler further taught, decisions of free choice are limited to the meeting ground between the positive and negative forces within a person. For example, many people might be negligent and speaking derogatorily about others only because they are accustomed to it and are oblivious to its severity. The very same people, however, would never consider stealing or murder 
because their education has ingrained in them not to do so to the extent that they have no inclination to do such things. But friends, assuming for a moment that an impulse towards evil is indeed placed inside of us, how can we be free to choose? We are told, I have created the negative inclination, the Yitzhahara, and I have created the Torah as an antidote that comes from the Talmud Kedushin. The Ramchal of 18th century Israel explains, as we have discussed, a person is the creature created for the purpose of being drawn close to God. He is placed between perfection and deficiency with the power to earn perfection. A person must earn this perfection, however, through their own free will and desire. Furthermore, it seems that at times free will is suspended. For example, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. Rashi comments on this passage in the Torah, uh, in Exodus, of course, since Pharaoh has acted wickedly and brazenly against me, and it is revealed before me that the idol-worshipping nations have no intention to improve their behavior, it is better that his heart be hardened in order to increase my miraculous signs and have Israel recognized by strength. Nevertheless, during the first five plagues, God did not harden Pharaoh's heart, for it is stated, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Rather, Pharaoh's heart became hardened because of his own actions. Rambam, Maimonides, used the Pharaoh example to express a broader theology. It is possible that a person may sin greatly or repeatedly with full intention and without remorse to the point that he is prevented from repenting. He is not permitted to change his evil ways in order that he should die and be lost because of the actions he has done. Therefore, it is written in the Torah, and I will strengthen Pharaoh's heart. Furthermore, Proverbs says, the heart of the king is controlled by God. Rabbi Meir Leibush ben Yechiel, known as the Malbim of 19th century Russia, taught on this verse, even though an individual has the ability to exercise free will, this is not true of a king, for his decisions affect the welfare of the country. If the king would make a decision with negative consequences, the impact could be destructive to many people. Therefore, his heart is in God's hand. And regarding national matters, his free will is annulled. So here we already see a few limitations on free will. Um, the free will where God restrains it, the free will for certain types of people, the free will of what gender we are born or what race we are born into, so our socioeconomic status we're born into. We see many limitations even through this Jewish commitment to free will. The Ramchal writes, we have proven from the scriptures and from our sages teachings that ultimately mankind will lose its free choice and evil will no longer exist. As it says in the Talmud, the verse says that transgression will disappear from the land. If so, the ultimate goal does not refer to man using free will and receiving reward and punishment for his actions, but rather to the world's general perfection. But until that future time, God combined the two issues, that God runs the world now with man possessing free will, and that God desires to reveal God's divine presence in God's profound wisdom in order to bring about the world's ultimate perfection. So friends, then there are other rabbinic sources that seem to give complete control of the world to the divine. Rabbi Hanania, Rabbi Hanania said, Rabbi Hanina said, a person does not even bang his finger below in this world 
without it being decreed as it is written from God are the steps of man. So on the one hand, we see a commitment that human enterprise is free. On the other, there's a commitment of omnipotence. If there's a divine being, the divine being must be all powerful and must control everything that happens. The Talmudic rabbis also teach, on the other hand, that many matters are not only up to God, but mazel. What are we saying when we say mazel tov or mazal tov? Congratulations, right? But what does it really mean? It means good luck. Mazel tov, mazel is luck, right? Good luck. What do you mean luck? What do you mean luck? I thought God's in control of the world. Rava said, length of life, children and sustenance do not depend on one's merit, but rather they depend on mazel. How long you're going to live? You know, you hear these people, they eat so healthy, they exercise eight times a day, they've got good relationships and all, and spiritual lives, and then they die young. And then the person who smokes and eats ribeye steaks four times a day, never ran on a treadmill in their life, and all of a sudden lives till 120. But in other cases, well, so according to Rava, it's, it's not about merit, it's about mazel. It's about your mazel, which is not about God and not about free will. It's about some other realm of constellations, if you will. Some rabbis who embrace a maximalist approach to hashkacha pratit, divine providence, attempt to make meaning of human existence. Rabbi Bachia ibn Pekuda, known as the Chavot HaLavavot, he writes, even when you are fully aware that effort is worthless, your effort is worthless. This is not the lesson you teach your kids. Ah, doesn't matter how hard you try. Without the decree of the creator, nevertheless, a landowner must plow his land, clear it of thorns, plant it and irrigate it if he has water, and trust that the creator will make it fruitful, protect it from mishaps, increase its yield and bless it. But it is inappropriate to abandon the field and not work at cultivating, but simply trust in God's decree to cause the earth to yield crops without being planted. Similarly, craftsmen, merchants, and hired workers are commanded to seek their livelihoods while maintaining their trust in God. For man's sustenance is under his control, and he guarantees it to man and provides it through whatever means it might be. So the Chavot HaLavavot, he'd be rolling in his grave if he heard there were tens of thousands of, of, of Haredi Jews in Israel who thought, I don't need to work. If I study Talmud all day, God will provide. God will provide, okay? Because he would say, okay, we do believe that God will provide, but that doesn't mean you can't work the field. Learning Talmud is not going to feed your family, you know? I mean, unless the Israeli government's going to give you stipends and then, and then it might feed your family, right? But, but ultimately, Chavot HaLavavot is saying, how do I jive this theology that God determines my, my fate with the idea that I still have to kind of try? I still got to try a little bit. In other words, Chavot HaLavavot is positing that success in one's endeavors is dependent upon both God and individual human effort. The Torah itself expresses this dual approach when warning about arrogance on the battlefield. It says in Deuteronomy chapter eight, if you will say in your heart, my strength and the power of my hand gave me this success, you must remember the Lord your God for it is God who gives you the power to be successful. Humans have the power to be successful in, in their own endeavors but that power comes from God. Now, if the language of God doesn't speak to you, fill in the blank, because I'm sure most of us don't think we're to blame for all of our failures. And I'm sure most of us don't think we are get the credit for all of our successes, whether we call it divinity or luck or, um, or, or social systems, complex systems theories, or whether we call it 
determinism, how do we understand the humility that we do not control all that happens in our lives? Spiritually, we each have free will to act and choose our own destiny. Freedom is the constitutive means of all morality. That is to say, one can only be good if one can choose between good and evil. If I'm just good, but I didn't choose it, that's not good. You have to be free to choose good for actually to be uh, virtuous. It is in the free choice that one attains one's humanity. Each human being is given the freedom to actualize, actualize her or his destiny. According to Reb Meir Simcha Devinsk in the, 19, in the early 20th century, what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God is precisely that we have free will. God is radically free, and so humans are free in God's image. And that freedom not only makes humans godly, but also makes humans human, i.e. not animals, which do not have such freedom. This gift is not, as stated earlier, the freedom from oppression, but rather the freedom to actualize one's purpose to make the world more just and holy. Our commitment must be to kamocha, to love others like ourselves. This love is achieved, indeed enriched, through means such as tzedek, social justice and distributive justice, mishpat, human rights and procedural justice, gimilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness, and being road face shalom, pursuing peace and thereby creating a more trusting society. And yet, in modernity, with the emergence of the social sciences, we learn that human behavior is both deeply complicated, yet also quite often predictable. In 1971, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, Professor Emeritus at Stanford University, famously conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment. Remember this? In which students were assigned roles as either guards or prisoners. Alarmingly, the intended two-week study ended after only six days because of how quickly and how wholly the students who were assigned the guard positions began acting in authoritative and violent manners. The guards inflicted such abuse that the disheartened prisoners were beginning to suffer from psychological damage and the environment rapidly became toxic and dangerous. In his experiments and books, Dr. Zimbardo reminds us of the horrifying fact that given the right situation, most good people can act in terrifying and evil ways. Says here, any deed that any human being has ever committed, however horrible, is possible for any of us under the right or wrong situational circumstances. That knowledge does not excuse evil, rather it democratizes it, sharing the blame among ordinary actors rather than declaring it to the province only of deviants and despots of them, but not us. That is to say that, that those who oppress is not about skin color. If white folks are in power, they will oppress people of color. If people of color are in power, they'll oppress white folks. If men are in power, they'll oppress women. If women are in power, they'll, 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 they'll oppress men, right? That whatever the situation is, when people are put in the situation of power, that systemically, and not every person, but systemically, that power has the deep potential to corrupt. It is not about race, it is not about, it is not about wealth, it's not about gender, it is about who is in power, according to his study. Professor Zimbardo has noted that at Abu Ghraib, 
American soldiers are all too willingly adopted the sadistic guard model and behaved in a disgraceful and abusive manner that did damage to America's reputation and status around the world. Zimbardo proves here that we should not believe that human behavior is entirely determined by circumstance. And at the same time, we shouldn't be so naive as to dismiss the enormous influence that one's context enacts on one's disposition and character. Psychologists and sociologists have long tried to understand why seemingly good people commit crimes. Apart from unstable childhoods, the impulsive and peer pressure driven adolescent years and very demographic problems, there appears to be a need that motivation and opportunity must exist in order for people to commit a crime. Upon hearing disturbing tales of good people turning to evil, we might yield to despair about our human capabilities. But this friends, I believe would be a mistake. We who live in a post-industrial society have more power than ever before. We constantly fall in order to climb forward. You read Aliyah. And as the falls are becoming more intense due to our immense technological capacity, so are the means to rise. In this cycle, we must remember that we, we possess the most powerful ability. It says here in the Midrash Tanhuma, stone is hard, but iron cuts it. Iron is stiff, but fire melts it. Fire is powerful, but water extinguishes it. Water is heavy, but clouds carry it. Clouds are strong, but wind disperses them. Wind is strong, but the body resists it. The body is strong, but fear destroys it. Fear is strong, but wine averts it. Wine is strong, but sleep conquers it. Death is more powerful than any of these, but Sadaka redeems death. Who wins out over all these natural, over all these natural forces? Philanthropy. The power to enact justice, the power to give of our resources, our time, our energy is the only thing that can overcome death because what we give because has an eternal nature to it that transcends death. The most powerful weapon we possess is sadaka, acts of righteousness. It is the way we defy the natural world, breaking from self-interest and even death, placing our souls in the realm of the eternal. The potential for spiritual and ethical actualization are all around us. We are reminded of the well-known and profound teaching of Reb Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. It is said that once he was once asked by his student, where does God live? They were bewildered. How can the rabbi ask, where does God live? Where does God not live? No, said the rabbi. God lives where we let God in. The age-old psychological debate about nature versus nurture has, has been resolved. It's resolved. Oh, I'm here. News, news break. We, get, we resolved the crisis with the concession that clearly human development is determined by both genetic factors and environmental influences. That is considerations from outside ourselves, not to mention our own internal free will choices. And so researchers have increasingly focused on the potential influence of free will. This novel research is emerging from an exciting contemporary field of neuroscience called neuroplasticity which observes how the mind's power alters the very structure and function of the brain in response to experience. 
Sharon Begley, the editor of the Wall Street Journal science section writes, like sand on a beach, the brain bears the footprints of the decisions we have made, the skills we have learned, the actions we have taken. We are remolding and reshaping our brain. Our brain, the, it, our brain is plastic in this regard, neuroplasticity. Today, neuroscientists can observe how repeated traumas etch neural pathways to turn grief into, into depression, how meditating monks can change the level of prefrontal activity by generating feelings of compassion, and how pianists can increase the shape of their mortal cortex, the motor, motor cortex through sheer imagination. Until relatively recently in human development, analysis of free will could not rely much, if at all, on empirical analysis. In Western civilization, for example, the pagan philosopher Aristotle, through the Reformation era, debate between the Protestant Martin Luther, Aristotle being pro-free will, Martin Luther being opposed, and the Catholic theologians, Erasmus, who was in favor, the debates utilized rhetoric and, and the then current theological thinking as a way of understanding human development and free will. The nature versus nurture debate had profound implications for political philosophy and structure as well. Politically, monarchies and their noble supporters have supported the position that nature rather than nurture determines the type of person one is and can be. And so the noble class argued then by hereditary and innate qualities, they provided a natural leadership and refinement to society. Of course I should be king. I'm born to be the king. I'm the only one born to do this. Whereas the inherently ignorant and cruel peasants offered no discernible value to society and that this was the inevitable order of the world. Not surprisingly, the nobility rarely elevated commoners to noble status. Pam, in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip this next page. So friends, much evidence from scientific research suggests that human development, personality traits, and behavior come more from nurture than nature. Many philosophers take similar possessions and ground their analysis in both physical science and philosophy. Consider the words of the philosopher and professor Thomas Nagel, who explains that we are not, in the materialist sense, simply brains on wheels that have evolved. So if mind is a product of biological revolution, if organisms with mental life are not miraculous anomalies, but an integral part of nature, then biology cannot be a purely physical science. The possibility opens up of a per pervasive conception of the natural order very different from materialism, one that makes the mind central rather than a side effect of physical law. Both theism and evolutionary naturalism are attempts to understand ourselves from the outside using very different resources. Theism offers a, a vicarious understanding by assigning, it, assigning to it a transcendent mind where purposes and understanding of the world we cannot ourselves fully share, but which makes it possible to believe that the world is intelligible, even if not to us. The form of this transcendent understanding is conceived by extrapolation from the natural psychological self-understanding that we have intentions. Harvard psycholo psychologist, Professor Steven Pinker recently told me, you can watch the VBM interview, that he believes in free will, but not as some miracle or soul-based phenomenon, 
but rather based on the notion that the human brain is so complex that human behavior will never be entirely predictable. The, this minimalist scientific approach may be more appealing for those leaning towards determinism. And so much of the Jewish tradition is adamant that humans are free to make choices and insist that this fact doesn't deny each person's unique nature. It also acknowledges that every individual has a unique internal psychology and spiritual influence. Pam, let's skip the, this next slide as well in the interest of time. We are so deeply influenced morally and spiritually in our youth before we are fully capable of making ethical decisions. And so who is right? Who is right? Those who feel God is in control, those who argue that nature is in control, or those who argue that humans are in control. It is too easy and simplistic to just respond, all of the above. In the end, we can humbly embrace that this is yet another major intellectual conflict that we cannot resolve. Maimonides writes, know that the answer to this question is longer than the earth and wider than the seas. A human being is not able to understand this issue completely, just as we are unable to perceive the true nature of God. And so let us learn and discern and focus on our personality traits, community concerns, and global issues where we must strive harder based on freedom and on those where we must humbly relinquish control based on trust that we are not completely free. Okay, friends. Okay, friends. Are we free? We have seen a lot of conflicting ideas here from social sciences, from theology. And I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Uh, Rabbi, you brought up a very fascinating point about the notion of, of, our, of human capacity. Uh, there's been other examples in Judaism where we talk about uh, the, a great example is like why we couldn't see uh, why like the burning bush is like that was our, our limited human capacity to be able to see God because if we could see like the physical manifestation of God our human capacity would would like be overwhelmed so the notion of freedom uh, free will versus um, you know Hashem's like you know I feel like that's also kind of that falls in the same category too that maybe to truly understand the full extent of our human capacities. Like we, we have limited capacity to understand the full extent of, to what degree, to what percentage, what capacity are we, uh, do we have uh, free will versus uh, there isn't free will. So I, I, I kind of would leave my comment there. Um, I, I can leave questions for um, after people have other comments. Right, perfect, thanks, Eric. Amazing, let's hear from, uh, Cheryl has unmuted. Nature versus nurture is really, I, I mean, it's, that really speaks to me. Um, one of my closest friends has adopted children. And if you talk about that, you know, and the fact that they've grown up to be amazing human beings, they might've come from some different kind of circumstances. So that's nature. Um, I'm also at this reading a book about uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And she grew up, I mean, she was kind of, you would say, quote, royalty you know, born into royalty, into the Royal Roosevelt family. She was a distant cousin of uh, ultimately Franklin Roosevelt, her husband, but she had the worst unnurturing, the worst unnurturing childhood. But I think that you can learn from both sides. 
you can really learn from a lot of people grow up and they say, I want to be just like my mom. But then the other on the other side, somebody will grow up and say, I just want to be exactly opposite of my mom. So I, I you know, there, there's certain circumstances, of course, that are going to come into play where uh, you don't really have a choice in some of these things. And I guess that's might be where where uh, God enters in, you know, that, you know, some sort of predetermination and things like that, but the nature nurture versus nurture is very important to me. Amazing. Awesome, Cheryl. Thank you so much. Yes, Michael. I think the concept of free will, you have to put it within the, you have to put that within context of the environment, the world we live in, whether you call that Hashem, whether you call it science. I mean, you know, we, we, we don't have the free will to select if we're like someone on the Amazon River who's, who's never seen, who's deciding, you know, where, what they're going to eat. They're not going to have the free will to drive. Our, I mean, free will is, is, is within the context uh, of, of how we live and where we live and everything like that. So I, I think and that goes back to a previous discussion in my mind with infinity. You know, we don't have a we don't have a a, a say in, in in our Earth and its rotation and things. But we we need to understand within the the universe that we have free will in, and we have to under uh, we have to set up a moral and an ethical and in 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 a whole way which we're going to react to this with and to this environment. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, so picking up on that. Um, you know, this is what Dessler, who we quoted a few times, calls Bechira point. And the way he articulates this, he says, life is like a battlefield. And excuse, excuse this analogy if the battlefield doesn't work for you. But the way he says, life is like a battlefield. And you are placed on a unique place on that battlefield. And the only free point you have is exactly where you stand. The things you've already conquered are not in your choice. And the things that are way beyond your virtue are not in your choice. Only right here. For example, Shmuley is not so um, is not so horrible that it's in my free choice to kill someone, right? I, I'm not going to go out and kill someone today. I've conquered that, right? But I'm also not so righteous that I'm going to go donate 90% of my income away. That's so far from my choice. My choice is right here. It's the tension point that exists in my life. And it says each of us, has to not just feel like we're great people because we conquered this and not feel like we're terrible people because we can't choose that, but figure out where is exactly my challenge to grow? What is exactly my Bechira point? What is the exact moment where I'm free to make a choice? And to be sure, picking up on Mike's point, it's not all victories. Part of it is just how we're born. What am I born into? What country? What era? What socioeconomic status? What gender? What Fill in the blank. And now, given that reality, where do my choices fall out? So yes, so there's a ton of contextualization that emerges with where the Bahira point is found. Yes, Scott. Um, it sounds, if I heard you correctly, it sounds like I've uh, uh, for years misunderstood or misread the story of the Pharaoh and his heart. Um, what does it say and how do you interpret that? Does it actually say, uh, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and we're supposed to assume that that was not necessarily the direct intervention of God or how, how do you think about that? Okay, amazing. So according to many, um, or, or the, the way most read it is God hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
because um, because um, otherwise he would let them go. And for various reasons, God wants the full 10 plagues. But according to this interpretation here, uh, from the rationalist approach, as opposed to the interventionist approach, it is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart when it's, it starts by saying Pharaoh's heart became hardened. And it only later says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which is to say that Pharaoh, Pharaoh did the natural part himself. He allowed himself to be, be non-empathetic, unempathetic. And after doing that a number of times, nature kicked in, which we can call divine intervention, call it nature, where he has conditioned himself towards a hardened heart, and he now lives with that reality. Now, that is done by those who want to preserve free will. No, God never did it to Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh also was free. And they do that because it's the paradigmatic or quintessential biblical case of someone who appears to not be free in their emotional disposition. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yes, I Mike. think you put one a little twist on this too. You could say perhaps this was a lesson that we learned that one of Pharaoh's mistake was thinking that he was God. Oh, for <laughs> sure, for sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, I mean the 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 main failing of a hardcore atheist is to not believe the job of God is taken. Um, and once you think it's not taken, then why not be me? You know, it's one thing to say, I don't know what it is. It's not me. It's another thing to say that, you know, there's a throne and, and I'll place myself upon it. Um, and, and, and in the, in the Egyptian, uh, in the ancient Egyptian civilizations, there's no doubt, just like in other, in other monarchies, there's no doubt that Pharaoh was a part of divinity. Um, uh, Pharaoh was a godly being. Um, this is such a drastic change from the Hebrew Bible that emerges that says, um, you are created in the image of God, but you are not God. You are not like you, the, the humility to know that whatever is out there, it's not us. We're not in control of the world. And, um, and, and in making him God, it also put a huge gap, as we said, on the importance of others, um, the importance of the, 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 the values of other rather than decentralizing or, 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 or suggesting dignity for all people. Um, and so, yeah, you're exactly right, Michael. And so friends, what do we do with this reality? Where if you look at the typical Jewish message, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, I'm gonna to choose to live different this year. I'm gonna make better moral choices in my life. I'm gonna grow spiritually. This is central to all Judaism. I'm gonna repair the world better. I'm gonna give more of myself. I'm gonna engage in self-transformation. This is like what we hear all the time, Teshuvah, right around all year, but especially the high holidays. And then the scientific field today, which more and more, and or economists, economists who, uh, who or or in um, behavioral uh, 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 in behavioral economics in particular, who show how predictable human behavior is, who show just how predictable laws of physics are, who show um, that human beings, given a set of circumstances, are almost entirely predictable. What do we do with these conflicting realities, in your view? Let God in. 
I mean, that's what you. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the slides that you showed towards the end said about free will. Uh, yeah, we have as much, we have free will. The, our free will extends to when we let God in. Yeah. So then it becomes almost like a partnership. Mm, right. So there's this partnership. If any of you have been in AA before, you know um, a lot of this about, um, about taking responsibility for oneself, but also uh, learning what's not in our responsibility and in our control. And, and what do we let in? How do we manage uncertainty in our life? But in particular, the uncertainty where we know we're not in control, right? If I go and I go, um, you know, and I look at what's happening in the NASDAQ or the Dow today, right? Unless I'm like, you know, Warren Buffett or some, or whoever, you know, like I, 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 I have no influence on, on, on what's happening. I can just kind of passively watch it. You know, if I'm looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today, I can just watch the news. Like I'm just a passive spectator in what's happening, right? Um, you know, or my own health. There's parts that are in our control and parts that are, what do I do with the parts where I don't have control? And friends, there's two types of self-help books. Of course, there's many kinds of self-help books. But one self-help message sounds like this. Accept who you are. Love yourself for who you are. The other type says, Become who you become who you want to be. Become the person you wish to be. One is all about, about you're already set. Here's who you are, right? And you should love the way you were created, the way you are in the world, because you are perfect. Love yourself as you are. The other message is the opposite. You should change. Believe in your power of change. Believe in the power of your dreams. Believe in the power of what you can be and how you can change the world, right? It's all about, no, it's not about what you are. It's about your potentiality rather than your actuality, right? Which of those messages speaks, speaks more to you, right? And which of the messages speaks more to you in terms of you control your world versus um, giving up control, whether to, to God, as, as Cheryl said, or whether to fate, or whether to chance, uh, or whether to a caregiver, right? So, um, um, so thank you for that, Cheryl. I think, I think that that is the next crucial question of, what do we welcome in once we embrace the reality um, that we're not in control? Scott, did you unmute again? No, I was just gonna say, it seems like there's just been like this battering ram of science on this question. It makes it harder and harder to answer your poll at the beginning and say, you know, I control everything always and everywhere. Um, so, but but it's, it's, I find it just personally very hard to, it's like there's an intellectual answer and then there's kind of a, an emotional psychological answer. It's, I can sort of sit there and say, yeah, intellectually, I understand that I'm not in control, but it's hard for me to live that way and, and absorb the implications of that. So I, I don't know. I'm, I've got head and heart are in two different places on this one. Yes, right. You know, and if you think about the implications, it's not just interesting. There's major implications. How do we think about mitigating factors in, in criminal justice, right? If someone, um, someone gets a much lesser crime, if we can show they weren't exactly free. Oh, this was a, in a state of, 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 uh, of trauma. This was a, a passion crime. This was done in a state of rage. Or actually, this person is an abuser because they were abused, right? Now that I showed that at age 13, this child was abused, 
now we can see why they're doing what they're doing at 21 and they should get a lesser sentence because it's not exactly their responsibility and they shouldn't be punished for something beyond their responsibility. Or what about someone crossing the border? Someone might say, oh, that guy crossed the border because he wants to get rich. That, that one crossed the border because they're, I can show you they're fleeing a, a village of violence. And so that one fleeing violence should be let in. That one who was fleeing a, a perfectly fine life but wants to get rich, that one's not okay. And so we judge, we judge um, culpability. We judge culpability based upon levels of freedom. And would we completely reimagine criminal justice if we understood that humans were not free at all? Is the entire criminal justice uh, is the entire criminal justice system developed in some sense based on the idea that people are free? I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you were traumatized as a child. I don't care what rage you were under. You just kill the person. You're going to jail for the rest of your life, right? As as opposed to a position, as opposed to something that views the context as everything. And so free will is not just a question about divinity. It's a question of how we structure our society and how we understand responsibility and culpability. What about a child? If, if, as you're raising a child and, um, and you understand the context of why your child made a certain choice, that, you know, how does that contextualization change the way we relate to it? Um, or, or a spouse, right? Yes, Matthew, did, did I, Matthew, were you about to jump in? Or did you just pop uh, on screen? No, no, no. I'm actually in an office somewhere. I'm trying to stay on mute and kill the video. So oh, I'm listening okay. until <laughs> I have to go into a meeting. But thank you for asking. Okay, good, good. Okay, Yehuda, do you want to jump in here? There it is. I'm mute. Um, yeah, you know, this whole discussion, we always talk about free will as 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 an individual thing, but I th think it extends and to society, to humanity as a species. Mm -hmm. And like the climate crisis, do we have free will? Are we able to be able to turn this and, and avert, avert what looks like we're heading to? And, mm -hmm. and so, because I can recycle at home and buy the electric car and, and do all of that, but is it gonna really extend out if, if the rest of society doesn't move? So amazing. I'm curious, does the human species have free will? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're totally right that we were, we, we were exploring the question primarily through the lens of the individual. And then Zimbardo in the prison experiment starts to show group dynamics how actually what's, what determines behavior is groups. And then there's a new field that develops out of Cambridge called complex systems theory by Baryam, where he shows that actually systems operate fundamentally different than groups and fundamentally different than individuals, right? And that when the more simple controls the more complex, a system can't develop, right? But when the more complex is given freedom to operate, the system develops. Here's, a, here's an obvious example for that. Um, if a monarch or a tyrant controls a society, the society can't develop in its full complexity. But if there's a democracy where the fullness of the population is engaged in the, in the society, at least in, in some regards, um, that then, then the system can flourish. So too, um, in the human body, if a finger controlled the body, the body couldn't, couldn't survive. 
But if the brain, the most complex part, controls the body, then it, then it, then it can thrive. So you're right. The, the, is the entirety of humanity free? And, and indeed, we see in the, in the Torah, not only individual responsibility, freedom and punishment, but collective. Think about the flood story. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. The idea that we have a collective freedom, a collective responsibility. So it's a great, great, great point, Yehuda. Steve, you want to jump in here, Steve? You're on mute still, Steve. Maybe you want to be. I wants to be on mute. Okay, he's he's good. Francine, or or back or Eddie or Eric. Can I can I jump oh, Cheryl. in again? Yeah, Cheryl, please. <laughs> um, I had I had to look up the source because I knew I knew the I knew the the, uh, the slogan, but I couldn't remember the source. And the source the source notwithstanding, which is the army. Their slogan is be all that you can be. And so with that in mind, you know, that goes right along with the individual and the partnership. They're not saying they're not saying that you have total responsibility. I mean, maybe that's what they mean. But for our, our discussion, I don't think they're saying you have total responsibility for who you turn out to be if you go into this military system as we were talking about, but I think you still need to have the partnership and luck and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that kind of thing, you know, partnership with God, so. Yeah, amazing, amazing. That's a great point. As they say in the Musar tradition, you balance hishtadlut with bitachon. Hishtadlut, striving to do all you can do, be the best, all you can be, with bitachon, a little bit of trust that comes with what you can't control. And, um, and so, it's so interesting to see that this is another case where Jewish theology has total opposite ends of the spectrum embraced. Those who suggest God is in control of everything and human freedom is a complete facade, a complete illusion. And those who suggest there is simsum, God retracted from the world and gave complete freedom to human beings, um, restricting omnipotence, and we can do and be all we can all we can, all we can do, and all we can be, and then we bring in the conversation of science, um, the, the conversation of science, and we see uh, what we can do with freedom uh, in ways that we can manipulate. We can even manipulate the human genes. We can manipulate um, who should be born. You know, I, I'm going to bracket the the, the pro-choice and pro-life art, you know, debates, but you may have seen in the state of Arizona. There is a political debate happening right now um, about whether if a child is going to be born with a genetic disposition that parents don't like, should they be allowed to abort for that reason? Uh, Republicans say no. Republicans say no. It doesn't matter what the genetic disposition of a child is. That, that's a potential human being, or Catholics would say human being. Um, they, they shouldn't be able to, to choose which genes are superior to others. And liberals, by and large, say women's right to choose. Right, we're going to be able to choose which 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 genes are preferable to us and not and not. So it's a fascinating. It's it's a it's it's a, it's an important debate, um, and we see here as well this sense of um, of uh, of this freedom to to determine uh, what part of myself uh, I actually have freedom to actually engage in, and it's worth experimenting in. Right, right? it's worth experimenting analyzing your life. And asking, why are you what you are? If, if you were to do a writing exercise after this, wh what are 20 things you would describe yourself to be? 
or, or 20 things you consistently do for your whole life or recently, right? And why do you do those? And do you pinpoint it as, oh, well, that's what my father did. Or do you pinpoint it because I grew up in Wichita? Or do you pinpoint it as, as, oh, I remember seven years ago I chose this and here's why I chose this. But why did you choose it? What was the influence of the show? Try to pinpoint why are you what you are and why do you do what you do? Yes, Michael. Also, I think the value we find in debate and rational discussions like this, it comes to a question of what, how each of us, what we mean when we say God, right. which is another way of saying, what do we mean by the environment, the right. world, the situation we're in, and how we deal with it? And, 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 and how to, it, it, and, and, and religion and this sort of discussion and, dis, and discussing the concept of God may be as good a way as there's going to be for us to approach these fundamental questions, which really, really drive, you know, how we should act and, and, and how we should interact with each other and, and look beyond. Yeah, very nice. Yes, this is this is built into the pluralism of VBM that uh, we want to expose the full spectrum of ideas and empower people to just get more clarity on their own path of, of, of where they are. We're not trying to persuade one way or another. And you're exactly right that whether there's a God or what the nature of that God is or, or this or that, um, there's such a huge uh, valid spectrum of ideas that can emerge there. And the, and the relationship of freedom in relationship to each of those theological positions can be so can be so diverse. And yet our goal here is not just to think, but to act. How will I live differently based upon my conclusion today that I am free or not free or free in this way or not this way? How will I raise children or grandchildren differently? How will I be a lawyer differently? How will I pray or not pray differently? Right? What will I do with the sense that, that I am I am free in this way and not free in that way, right? It's not just an interesting debate. It is an, it is an opportunity for us to, you know, to embrace that. For determinists, they can say, I'm going to give my life over to God, right? Or give my life over to science, right? Um, for, for, a, uh, for a free will maximalist, like an existentialist, they would say, I'm going to embrace radical freedom in my life. I'm going to do radical things based upon my, my sense of freedom. But one of the other places this comes out is, um, actually, let me bracket this point because I want to hear if anyone else has, uh, has to share here. Eric, you were, we're going to come back to your question, Eric. Oh, um, I'm going to try to simplify this one. This might be a little harder to kind of ask. Um, you gave great sources across the board about the spectrum of uh, the notion of freedom and the, the interpretations of it with uh, freedom and control. Um, the one thing that really I haven't heard was, is there been a trend of of different denominations or sub or sex within subdenominations that have um, that have a leaning towards one aspect of, uh, and, and not just Ashkenazi or Sephardic. I mean, I'm not talking just Orthodox reform. There could be like whether it's a, a geographical as well that could lean towards. Uh, one line of thinking of the notion of freedom versus control versus somewhere in the middle. 
It's a great question. And it's a good day to ask the question because today is the day that the Pew study comes out. And you may have seen some of the headlines already um, around um, major uh, developments, you know, um, the, I mean, major statistics, uh, which, you know, said all the Jewish heads of institutions, their heads are spinning to try to make sense of all the data to show that more and more Jews than ever are, are not participating in anything Jewish whatsoever. Um, and so today is the day to understand those trends. I haven't seen a study in particular that shows uh, regional or denominational uh, correlations with, with such ideas. Um, you know, and, and I think that obviously the idea that divine, divine submission is much more an orthodox idea than a liberal religious idea. The idea that we are not so free, God is in control and we can just submit. That's a more traditionalist idea, but there's a lot more to be said about that. Um, so I hope that maybe today's study will show us some of that data. So friends, to conclude here today, um, what we tried to show was that there, it is not as simple as saying modern Jewish scientists or modern science in general versus traditionalism, but actually within our own tradition itself, we see positions for radical free will. We see positions for radical determinism and everything in between. And so too, in the fields of science, we see those who argue certain things are determined and certain things are not. So too in the field of law um, and criminal justice, and this is a debate that continues to, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to be fascinating and be discovered. We are beyond the polar extremes of nature versus nurture, but only in the camp of understanding the intersectionality of such questions and understanding how these things come together. And so friends, I give us all the bracha, I hope you'll give it back to me, that we can, we can continue to, to appreciate all that we are, which we did not choose to be. The good things that we are in our life that we did not choose for ourselves and be more gentle with ourselves on the negative things in our life that we also did not choose, that we kind of inherited. And then identify that place where we are free and grab hold of it and do all we can to actualize those moments, those potentials for freedom out in the world. What I say to my kids when they jump out of the car this morning, because they literally jump out in this drive out line, they gotta like jump out, they're like rushing us through the line. And there's even a police officer that he's making them jump out. It's like, you know, so much for precautions is I say, be the best Amiela you can be, be the best Lev you can be. Right? You know, all we can do is be the best ourselves that we can be based upon what we've inherited, who we are and where we are positioned to find our freedom and actualize that. Have a wonderful day. God bless and can't wait to see you all soon. Thank you so much for joining.